Welcome Nonprofit News Feed. My name is George Weiner, the Chief Whaler of Whole Whale, and we have Nick Azule, the digital strategist over at Whole Whale. This week, we are talking about the IVF information, NRA, having some issues, and deforestization. That's what we're talking about. How's it going, Nick? It's going great, George. Like you say, we want to talk this week about IVF, particularly the nonprofit angle here. So in Alabama, about a week ago, the Alabama Supreme Court decided in a case that frozen embryos were legally, quote, unborn children and has put multiple IVF clinics on edge, fearing possible criminal repercussions for this work. So the politics of this have gotten really, really dicey. This is, of course, extremely restrictive extremely restrictive ruling on behalf of the Alabama Supreme Court, multiple clinics offering and medical centers offering IVF as a fertility treatment have closed their operations due to this 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 ruling. House Republicans, some of uh, some House Republicans and, and other Republicans have come out actually against this ruling because they realize kind of how unpopular it is. But George, beyond the politics, which, by the way, are deeply, deeply unpopular based on polling from Pew and others, Planned Parenthood said that this decision could, quote, ripple across the country on the state and federal level as personhood laws proliferate. So even though this isn't federal legislation necessarily, because of the Dobbs decision, abortion rights are now being adjudicated and the states, particularly Supreme state judicial systems, and rulings like this could become potentially commonplace as stringent as they are. And of course, nonprofit organizations like Planned Parenthood and many others will be on the front lines of advocating against those building up support, um, engaging in lobbying activities, that kind of thing. George, what do we think of this? Look, on a personal level, I know many families that have benefited from IVF and it actually I mean, it is pro-life. If you want more life, if you want more babies in the world, there are folks that can't have children unless there are the amazing interventions of IVF that allow that to happen. So like, let's like park that on the side. I love what Planned Parenthood is doing here, which is going on, having these conversations on major media channels and getting that narrative out there. And they're exactly right. They're exactly right in saying like, where does the boundary stop? And, you know, you had the, you know, Planned Parenthood CEO talking on MSNBC. We have got statements from Planned Parenthood Southeast President Carol McDonald saying like this could ripple across the country on state and federal level as personhood laws proliferate. And that is the Life at Conception Act, which has 125 House Republicans, including Mike Johnson, in, in the mix on that. And so they're, they're exactly right to sound the alarm bell. This isn't just Alabama, which is already rough enough, right, where you're, you're potentially criminalizing helping families that are trying to conceive, again, seems like anti-pro-life, by the way, uh, and having them be a very loud voice out there, continue to have those conversations, but continue to be in the press and just make this point of what it looks like for folks. So great job, Planned Parenthood, and, you know, the work as needed somehow more than ever. Yeah, George, I couldn't agree more. And I think it adds urgency to so many of the, the political conversations and, and campaigns that, of course, are ongoing up until and including November. So I'm sure that this will be a big part of that because it already has become a big part of that. Yeah. Right. And great job I by will... the Democracy Labs. Mm. 
sorry, great job by the Democracy Labs. They put together a very interactive map that lets you see exactly where all of the folks supporting this draconian approach to IVF uh, are, are potentially supporting this Life at Conception Act. Yeah, George, no, that's an excellent resource. Def definitely everyone should check it out. All right, I'll take us into our next story. This one comes from NBC News. George, this is a story we've been following for a while, both because it is a story of nonprofit interest, but also one, again, with national policy implications. So Wayne LaPierre and, and the NRA, the National Rifle Association, have been hit with a guilty verdict in their high-profile civil corruption trial led by New York Attorney General Letitia James that began in 2020. So LaPierre alone was found responsible for $5.4 million in monetary harm to the organization, and Pierre, along with other executives, were found to have violated their duties in good faith. This legal showdown could result in permanent barring from charity board service in New York for the defendants, including LaPierre, and potentially usher in a new era of oversight in the NRA's financial affairs. Of course, George, the question remains, the NRA become, remains one of the most important and impactful lobbying groups, again, a nonprofit in the United States when it comes to gun rights, Second Amendment rights, and is seen by gun control and gun safety advocates as kind of the antithesis to their, their goals. So does this have a permanent impact on the NRA? I think that question is still up in the air. Does this have an impact on the NRA's policy achievements? Again, still up in the air, but this is a, I think, a fairly big deal for the Second Amendment advocacy world. Yeah, I guess part of me is, you know, saying like, you know, I'm not exactly sad that the leader was a bit corrupt and allegedly, you know, or actually stole millions of dollars from the organization because those millions would have gone toward, you know, lobbying and finally putting more guns in the schools, which is terrible. Yeah, like stop with some of the advocacy that you're getting behind that makes our population less safe. So I'm like, all right, I think the bigger piece here is the barring from charity board service in New York. Nick, I'm not entirely sure what that really means. What are the second order effects of being barred from charity board service in New York? George, that's a great question. And that's actually an interesting one because as we just saw in the Trump trial, Trump business dealings trial, with a verdict that slapped Trump with, I think, a net 300 something million dollar verdict, but with interest, it'll be over $400 million. But one of the potential ramifications with that was actually barring defendants in that trial, Trump and his children, from actually conducting business in the state for a varying number of years. And of course, that's going to be appealed. I wonder, however, if this has similar in implications in the nonprofit angle. Would barring LaPierre and others from serving on the board have a meaningful impact on the NRA's ability to operate quite frankly, don't know. It'll be interesting. Of course, the NRA is not the only kind of pro-gun lobbying group, right? Second Amendment uh, uh, lobbying and advocacy exists beyond the, the NRA. Um, but that potential barring from the board and the legal fallout from this, I think could impact in the short term, at least, the NRA's ability to organize and particularly mobilize financial resources, donations, that kind of thing in a critical election year. Yeah, I don't know if it is a 
a really big hit actually that can still raise money. It's just a matter of board directors and their abilities in New York. So we'll see. But I thought it was interesting, and I know it had been in the courts for for quite some time. But you know the the details of that, like the abusive use of financial funds, are a lesson to anybody leading a company or a nonprofit. I'd say, especially where it's like, don't don't do that. Yeah, don't do that. Um, also, because I think people kind of misconstrue the NRA. The NRA makes a ton of mom, money from booze, right? Like. Middle, low income, normal Americans give money to them, right? They're seen as kind of a trustworthy organization on the right in the gun community and have a fairly high reputation within that community. So it's not a victimless crime, I think, what is is trying to say, even though it's a cause I know, George, you and I both personally disagree with. It's not a victimless crime here. The mismanagement of nonprofit funds does kind of impact, you know, people who donate and and contribute to these organizations and engage with them through financial transactions. All right. I'll take us into our next story. And this one comes from Visual Capitalist. And George, we love this because this is a visualization, the contents of which we don't really love. And that is around the world's failure to halt deforestation. So Sign up for the newsletter and check out this this graphic. But the world's efforts to curb deforestation hit a snag in 2022 as global deforestation increased by 4%, totaling 6.6 million hectares, a worrying 21% above the annual target set to eliminate deforestation by 2030. The bulk of this loss is occurring in tropical regions, including in Latin America and the Caribbean, highlighting a significant challenge in the battle against climate change. The political challenge there, too, is a lot of these countries are poorer economically. And then you get into the political questions of, you know, protecting the environment, the the obligation of these organizations to to protect the environment when they, in fact, are are not the causes of things like uh, climate change broadly. Um, But despite the dire need for funding, the current $2.2 billion annual investment in forest conservation falls quite low of the requirements, according uh, to research. So, George, we are not saving the forests, unfortunately. It's a complicated issue. And I think it's important to note that it's easy to sit in a, you know, a developed nation that already devastated our national forests and parks, frankly, down to pretty, pretty meager levels to then say, and other developing countries say, oh, no, you can't use those natural resources. So I, I think some amount of more advanced compensation, smarter tourism, all of these things for farming. There's so many issues baked into here. So if, you know, the initial thing is like, oh, don't, you know, don't touch your natural resources because it has to benefit everyone. I try to balance that mindset of saying like the the solution is is more nuanced, but it is still alarming to be uh, losing the biodiversity necessary to sustain this planet that at that rate. It doesn't take long to get to, to to zero if you keep going up by these levels of percentages. So I think a good job just sort of creating this visual and we we share it on YouTube, by the way. So if you do watch us on, on YouTube, like and subscribe because that's things people say about YouTube. I wanted to include it because it's a great use of visualization to tell that story. Yeah, absolutely, George. And I can plead with you. I, I got to attend a talk with the president of the Democratic Republic of the Congo recently. He was talking about deforestation specifically, and made a commitment. The president made a commitment to tackling deforestation, but to eliminate what you're saying, 
in the list of priorities, in addition to deforestation, the president is dealing with things like insurgency, conflict, population's lack of access to food, water, and electricity, right? So just to highlight that these countries, yes, I think they do in principle care about deforestation, but there are literal humanitarian emergencies that in many of these places that need more like urgent attention. So in that way, I do think it is in some ways the moral responsibility of more developed, more economically fortunate countries to help facilitate the protection of the forest through whatever means necessary. Yeah. All right. George, how about a feel-good story? What do you have for me? All right, George, I'm really excited about this one. This one comes from the Washington Post, but we've been following what the folks over at Khan Academy have been doing for quite a while. So the education legend, as the Post calls it, has created an AI integration system with Khan Academy Learning that they really do think can meaningfully change how students learn. So South Khan, the founder of Khan Academy, has taken a proactive leap into the AI realm, transforming his concern over AI-facilitated cheating into harness AI for educational excellence. So Khan Migo is an AI tutor that integrates into Khan Academy's vast educational resources with step-by-step learning and reading, really meeting students where they're at. Uh, If you're a teacher, you know that differentiation is quite hard, right? That specialized attention to meet students where they're at and different needs can be quite challenging inside the classroom. And this innovative tool now available, I don't think it's that expensive, is already making waves in the education sector. And I think that with proper guardrails, which I'm sure that Khan and the folks at Khan Academy have taken to account can meaningfully transform how students learn and hopefully for the better. I mean, this is everything that AI could be, should be as it interacts with education. And of course, of course, it's Khan Academy doing this. They, you know, went about training and fine tuning a model with their educational approach so that it acts like a teacher. It doesn't just give you the answer. And they have, yeah, like, uh, really reduced hallucination on this. Uh, you, know, you always have to be careful as it interacts with uh, young people, but the guardrails on this are are pretty strong. And I like that they have uh, pushed this out there because I think this is going to do an amazing amount for equity in education. The access to that type of teacher that like knows and grows with you, it is beyond exciting for what what is possible here. And I love it that Khan Academy is is rolling this out. Just awesome. All right, Nick, I got a joke for you because that's what we do here. And this week, my question actually is, when does Khan Academy have classes about ice cream? When does Khan Academy have classes about ice cream? Oh, George, that's a great question. I'm not sure I know. On Sundays. Oh, I see. I see what you did. That's good. (laughs) Good. All right, Nick. Thanks as always. And you can find us on YouTube, like and subscribe if you find us at youtube.com slash whole whale. And that's where we post the awesome videos we put these jokes on. Thanks, George.